Hello, it's The Leap of Faith and you're very welcome to this week's programme. The Muslim holy month of Ramadan starts on Tuesday next, April 13th. The pre-sunrise to sunset fast lasts anywhere from 10 to 21 hours, depending on where in the world you are. Ramadan Mubarak. On Tuesday, it's also Vasakhi. It's the Spring Harvest Festival. It marks the Sikh New Year and is also an ancient Hindu festival, celebrating the Solar New Year. RTE1 Television has a short film for Vasaki early on Sunday evening called On Garda Siakana, featuring the first turban-wearing Sikh Garda reservist, Ravinder Singh Oberoi. On the programme tonight, the death was announced this week of the Catholic priest and theologian Hans Kung, who was 93. Kung's legacy and impact on the Roman Catholic Church generated many comments this week from those who knew him or were influenced by his prolific writing. His moulding of Vatican II and his questioning of papal infallibility are just two of the talking points I'll share with John Wilkins, former editor of The Tablet. That's in a moment. But first, as our older population receives its COVID inoculations, they face the prospect of getting to leave their homes and in time returning to religious services and gatherings. There have been restrictions too for those in Irish prisons, where a vaccination programme recently began for older prisoners. Over the past year, many chaplains around the country's 12 prisons have been adapting the way they provide pastoral care and spiritual support to staff, the prisoners and their families, who may be of all faiths or none. Sean Duggan is head chaplain for the Irish Prison Service and joins me now. Sean, welcome to The Leap of Faith. I'm thinking that the experience where someone may find themselves within the prison system. Can you explain what it means to have a prison chaplain available for some kind of spiritual support? So the role of the prison chaplain in Irish prisons is unique. And a chaplain will meet the person on their very first day of custody, on their committal into prison. And a chaplain will accompany those in custody throughout their prison journey. And like you or I, Michael, we face a whole spectrum of human experiences in our life. And that is the same for those in custody. So They may go through issues of um, family difficulties uh, or bereavement. They may have difficulties adjusting to the very restricted uh, prison environment. Uh, But what they will also be looking for is support and care. And a prison chaplain can be a signpost to those in custody uh, to signpost to them the relevant supports that they might need. And a prison chaplain, as I said, will accompany the person right up until the day that they are released. And for this person who finds themselves with their liberty removed, may also be in a situation where society in general are angry with them or, or annoyed mm. with them or set with, upset with them, mm. and they may even be very friendless. Mm. It, to, to, to go into prison or to be brought into custody and to serve uh, a prison sentence is something which is uh, decided on upon our courts. So when a person goes to prison, Uh, It is the deprivation of liberty that is the punishment. Uh, So that deprivation of liberty uh, is there, uh, but that does not take away all the other rights that those in custody have. COVID has posed difficulties because, as I said, um, prisons follow government guidelines and public health measures. And with that, there have been uh, suspension of religious services. But that is not to say that those in custody have had no access to religious services. Uh, Religious services have been provided for online and streaming. And there have been innovative and creative approaches to ensure that that whole aspect of human experience is provided for and supported 
uh, by the organisation and particularly through the role of prison chaplains. How has the experience been for families? Because that is, of course, uh, another group of people who are affected mm-hmm. if somebody is, finds themselves in prison. Mm-hmm. I presume visiting hasn't been possible. No, at, at different times during the lockdown and again because of government guidelines, uh, uh, physical visits to the prison have been suspended. The Irish Prison Service recognises um, the importance of strengthening the family relationships and on foot of that, the prison service introduced uh, a whole uh, a range of video calls or visio- video visits whereby those in custody uh, can arrange a video call to their loved ones in the community and abiding by the necessary protocols. Mm. So how has that actually mm. worked for, for both families and prisoners? It has been hugely welcomed because without that, there would be um, a huge vacuum there, uh, which uh, w- would not be filled. And there is a lot of feedback on it. And obviously there are pros and cons to everything. Um, those in custody have enjoyed the experience of being able to engage face to face with their loved ones at home and even have an insight into uh, the home place and the homestead. And it has given people a lift and it has been an an enjoyable um, and worthwhile experience, albeit important to say uh, video visits um, are no replacement uh, for uh, physical visits uh, to the prison. But given the COVID restrictions, they are a very welcome development. In addition to video visits, um, prison chaplaincy has developed um, a heretofore um, service that was not available heretofore, it's, uh, and it's called telechaplaincy. And what it is, very simply, Michael, is that a prisoner in his or her cell has the facility to phone his or her own prison-based chaplain for a confidential conversation. And what's important about this development is uh, the physical movement of everybody in prisons has been has been restricted uh, so as to uh, cut down on, um, on, on cross-contamination. And those who are confined to their cells for COVID reasons um, need the support and need the access to a chaplain. But because they're confined to a cell, they mightn't easily be able to, uh, to see a chaplain. So now they can ring their own chaplain. They can make an appointment uh, to phone their chaplain. They can ring um, whenever that suits them. And this really points out that uh, technology has had a huge role to play in assisting and supporting uh, the delivery of chaplaincy in prisons in Ireland. I'm thinking too about, of course, there's another population that you look after, and that's the officers as well. Um, mm. has, has that had challenges? In other words, how have the, the, have the prisons managed over the period of COVID? Have, has it been COVID-free? So it's, it's a, a very interesting uh, question, Michael, because currently Irish prisons... Uh, are COVID-free and the Irish Prison Service has been widely praised uh, for the way it has responded and kept prisons COVID-free for the vast majority of time throughout the pandemic. Now, there have been um, a small number of outbreaks and the Prison Service has responded quickly and decisively uh, to eliminate the COVID infection. So again, for anybody who lives or works in prisons, um, managing COVID is a daily challenge. However, what has been of huge benefit has been clear guidelines and strong communication. Final question for you, Sean. What's a good day at work for you? A good day at work. (laughs) It's to be out on the landings, 
um, meeting with uh, prisoners, engaging with prison staff, uh, listening to how their days are going, um, responding to whatever issues might come up and hopefully being able to resolve these, uh, these matters as they arise. That's a good day for me to be out and about on the landings, moving amongst the prisoner population. It's important to say, Michael, prison chaplains have been doing that even within the context of COVID restrictions. They've been doing that day in and day out uh, since the beginning of the pandemic and will continue to do so and recognised uh, by the prison service as an essential service, but also sought after and cherished by those who work and live in our prisons as an essential support in the area of pastoral and spiritual care and in so many other areas as well uh, that are um, difficult to um, kind of sum up in, in, one easy, in one easy sentence. Sean Duggan, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Thank you, Michael. The death was announced this week at the age of 93 of Father Hans Kung. A contemporary of Joseph Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict, he was a liberal Catholic theologian whose teachings and numerous best-selling books call for reforms in the Church and whose criticism of the idea of papal infallibility led to a formal censure by the Vatican. He was regarded by admirers and detractors alike as one of the most important Catholic thinkers of the past century. In later years, he took an increasing interest in major world religions, from Judaism to Hinduism to Islam. Well, to discuss his life more, I'm joined from his home this evening by former editor of The Tablet, John Wilkins, who knew Dr. Kung. John, welcome to The Leap of Faith. Let's talk about the man first. Born in Switzerland, son of a shoe store manager. Could you give us a sense of his character? He was very much a sportsman. He liked swimming in particular. Swimming for him was a metaphor for faith because you jump in and the water holds you up. And he often used that metaphor. He, he was a very, very fascinating man, I thought. The Swiss, as you know, they used to be the great mercenaries of Europe. And that's why to this day, the Swiss guards guard the Pope. If you go into the Vatican, you try to get into the Vatican, you have to get admitted by the Swiss guards. And I think that Kung had this pugnaciousness, if you like, perhaps that's not the, quite the right word, but he was very, very uh, willing to put things on the line. And I think that was the Swiss characteristic. He used to say so himself. If we rule forward then to about 1968 and his first interaction with Joseph Ratzinger when he got him a job at the University of Tübingen. That gives us a very interesting insight into Joseph Ratzinger in that at the time of the student revolution, there was an element of fear from Joseph Ratzinger about this. Well, I think that Hans Kuhn himself, who, as you say, was at Tübingen at the same time, felt pretty alarmed himself. It was... Uh, in German universities, professors are like God. And suddenly the students were teaching, treating their professors as very much less than God, were insulting them. And uh, certainly with Ratzinger, someone who knew him at that time said that he thought these insults were felt by Joseph Ratzinger like arrows coming into him from the students. And certainly Kung himself was challenged by the unrest at that time. 
we can actually hear Hans Kuhn talking about this. This is a clip from a documentary called A Farewell to Benedict, which was first aired in 2013 on RTE1. I was also disturbed, but the difference was that he basically was wounded and remained wounded and was from this time on against everything coming from below. Ratzinger left Tübingen for the relative quiet of Regensburg, but his brush with anarchy led him to reconsider his own previous enthusiasm for change. He probably saw that this movement away from the past was in danger of going too far. This was the move to relegate God to the sidelines, to the sacristy, to have no place for God at all. He saw that that was way, way beyond anything that the Vatican Council had recommended. The same relationship, that, John, that was back there in 1968 was later to come under some strain because people started to see him um, as being somewhat dangerous, I think was the phrase he even described himself. Yes, I'm always amazed that the Catholic Church continued with Kung as a priest in good standing, which they did. Sometimes people think that he was excommunicated from, for his views on uh, infallibility, the doctrine of infallibility, but it was, that was not the case. It's an interesting story for people who might not know it, was that the original discipline that was taken against him was by his former friend and colleague, Joseph Ratzinger. Yes, indeed. In the, in the autobiography that Kung wrote, you begin to see that Ratzinger was not a steadfast friend of Hans Kung, not at all. Although Kung had got him into Tübingen, and they were both full professors, Kung at the amazingly early age of the early 30s, 32 I think he was, but they never became uh, friends of a firm sort, not at all. Well, I was, of course, deeply disappointed and saddened. He just didn't anymore understand my own position. He thought modernity is basically a decay of the church. And uh, he just thought I am a dangerous man. Maybe I was. There is a story, I don't think, I think, uh, I think it's probably true, that, um, and it's rather neatly phrased to put Kung in a better light than Ratzinger. And the story is that Kung had an Alfa Romeo, a red Alfa Romeo, which he liked very much as a sports car, whereas Joseph Ratzinger preferred to go on his bicycle. Now, Tübingen has some pretty high hills, and if Joseph Ratzinger was late, should we say, from lessons or something like that, Hans Kuhn would give him a lift. They did at some stage attempt to reconcile the difference. They, they met for a lunch. They did indeed. It went on a long time. It went on for four hours. One would have hoped that something might have come out of that. But in fact, they were very divergent by then. They were on divergent paths. Because of his involvement with Vatican II, I've heard him described as one of the architects of Vatican II, do you think he had a, a sense of, of ownership of, of that Reformation? 
No, I think to say that he had ownership would be to, to go too far. He did write a book, The Council of Reunion, which was thought to have influenced the council, but it, he was not central, I don't think, in the way that, for example, Yves Congard, the Dominican theologian, was. We have another clip from that documentary, A Farewell to Benedict, and in, in it we hear Hans Kuhn describing how John Paul II and Ratzinger attempted some part of a restoration, maybe turning back the clock. Yes, they did. Basically, what uh, Joseph Ratzinger and Karol Wojtyla have done is a restoration. They tried to restore the medieval Roman Catholic Church. This was, I think, the wrong kind of certainty because it did not answer the most important questions people had from uh, moral theology, uh, all the questions on birth control, the problems of divorce, and I think the whole result was basically negative. Hans Kung has said somewhere that um, John Paul II and Joseph Ratzinger were uh, a pair, they were partners. Can you expand on the idea that his writings seem to encourage a, a lot of people uh, who had maybe become disaffected with the, the Roman Catholic Church and, and that it almost seemed to give them some, some idea of hope and, and to staying, stay with it? I think you, you put it very well. I think that um, that was the great thing about Hans Kung, that he did speak to people in the terms they wanted to hear answers given. And uh, they weren't like so many church conferences or conference spokesmen that actually they don't answer the question. And Kung did, you might not always like the answers, but he answered them. And people felt they were being addressed on their terms. Uh, so he was an enfant terrible a bit, Hans Kuhn. Um, but uh, he really cared about He was asked in a television interview once, are you trying to rock the boat of Peter? And he said, no, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just wanting to make people love Jesus Christ more. I think yeah. he did try and do that in his books. John Wilkins, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you very much. Adrian Gebruer is the Carillion heir of St. Coleman's Cathedral in Cove, plays the Carillion each week, and the bells can be heard around as well as a great distance beyond the town. Since the pandemic began, Adrian has been presenting weekly Carillion recitals billed as Bells of Hope to Raise People's Spirits. Well, last Easter Sunday, our reporter Noel Sweeney went along to the East Cork town to meet Adrian and to find out more. Cove is unusual. It's, it's a town which has a sound associated with it, and the sound is the bells here, is the Carillion. Since March of last year, the people of Cove are enjoying weekly Carillion recitals. I've been associated with it for 50 years now, uh, over 50 years, and my father as long before me. So between us, we're nearly 100, 100 years at it. Adrian Gabor has been the Cove Cathedral Carillionaire for most of his life. And when everything changed last year, he went about keeping local spirits high. During the pandemic, 
I've been playing every week uh, a recital which I call Bells of Hope to try and lift people's spirits and with the feedback I've got, it seems to have done some good. What inspired your choice of music today? Well, this is Easter. It's the greatest feast day in, in the liturgical calendar. And so obviously it's joyful music. Um, we have all the alleluias, and I, I played a lot of hymns that have alleluias in them. Bring all your dear bought nations, bring alleluia. Uh, and, and so on. I also uh, played some Irish music, as we always do, and we end every recital with the, the Bells of the Angelus, that hymn. Um, so it's music which is a celebration of the day. In the marking of Easter, no bells sound between Holy Thursday and the evening of Holy Saturday. Holy Thursday, in the evening, we have the Mass of the Lord's Supper. And um, the Gloria is, is sung then, the Gloria normally isn't sung for the whole of Lent, but it is for that one Mass. And it's sung, sung with great celebration, the ringing of church bells, and there's a fanfare on the organ, and the organist, which I played also. And then after that, there are no bells, there's no organ, until Holy Saturday night, when you have the East, great Easter Vigil ceremony, the lighting of the Paschal candle and so on. And the Gloria isn't toned in, and that's the first time the organist played the Gloria said, and the bells are rung since Holy Thursday. With Adrian performing way up there in the playing cabin, I'm finding out how the people of Cove feel about Bells of Hope. It looks, it's, it's good, like, you know. He's taken over from his father, like, that's, that's a long tradition there, like, you know. The bells, and I think his daughters are playing them there now as well, like, you know. We came here in 1954 when we came down to Cove. We were from Donegal originally, like, you know, so... 1954, I'm just to that, you know. You know, it's good for the harbour, like, good for the town, like, you know. People take notice of it, like. Did you grow up here? I did, born right here, yeah. So I'm listening to it all my life. <laughs> I lived underneath him. Really, yeah? yeah? Whereabouts? Just up the hill there, just King Street there. He woke me up in the mornings <laughs> and put me to bed at night. <laughs> no, fairness, the bells are fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I enjoy my day in Cove today. It's a very fine, nice Easter Sunday. And Cove Cathedral had fantastic chimes today. So a fascinating chime. Uh, the Cove Carillion is one of two such instruments on the island of Ireland and the only one in the Republic. Its installation in 1916 was the first on Irish shores, while 1921 saw St. Patrick's Catholic Cathedral in Armagh installed their carillion. The arrival of the Cove Carillion during World War I was a fascinating sight to behold, as Adrian explains. It's a unique instrument in this country, uh, this 49-bell carillion. It's the largest in Britain and Ireland in terms of number of bells, but it's a tradition that basically comes from the lowlands of Flanders and the Netherlands. The um, bishop of the time is Bishop Brown. Perhaps one of his nephews is more famous than he is because he was Father Brown, the photographer. And there's a, a link there to, to the Carillion, how it got here, because this Father Brown, who was a chaplain in the British Army during the First World War, and so was on continental Europe quite a lot. And while there, he visited many of the cities there, like uh, Ghent and Bruges and, and Mechelen, and he heard Carillions there. 
At that very point, Bishop Brown was completing the building of the cathedral in Cove. So his nephew came back to me and said, I know what you should put into the tower of your cathedral. What would be the jewel in the crown? And he said, a carillion. Bishop Brown was also very friendly with the Admiral who lived in this building next door, Admiral Bailey at the time. And as it happened, the carillion was ready. It was cast in England in Loughborough. The 42 bells as it was originally were on the docks in Liverpool, right in the middle of the First World War. So of course, you couldn't get a ship for love nor money to transport them. And even if you did, uh, another nephew of the bishop, who was also a priest, said there was a danger that the cathedral bells would end up diving bells. The ship would be torpedoed and they'd end up at the bottom of the sea. Uh, but because of the bishop's friendship with the admiral, uh, they were brought over on the decks of a, of a British battleship. Imagine that ship coming in the harbour here, a battleship with 42 bells uh, on, on its decks. And as she went over to Hall Boland, which would have been the naval headquarters, and then they were offloaded onto barges and brought across here to, to Cove. And uh, then they were transported onto a horse-drawn drays, brought up the hills and in, into the cathedral that way. It's, it's an amazing story. There are carillions all over the world. There's no carillion that has that sort of story associated with its beginnings. While most musicians are without any platform since last year, Adrian found himself to be in a fairly unique position. And with that, Bells of Hope was born. When this pandemic occurred about a year ago, um, when it began, it suddenly dawned to me that the Crillian is an instrument, if you like, ideally suited to these circumstances, because it's a, an outdoor instrument meant to be listened to in the outdoors without any amplification. Uh, it can be heard over a wide area. And so I, I felt it almost as an obligation to play this instrument regularly, uh, which I would normally would not do throughout the winter, uh, uh, every week. And I, I tried to select music that I thought would lift people's spirits, but would also be sympathetic to the feelings they're experiencing. And of course, there's much sadness in, in connection with this, this pandemic. Thanks to Noel Sweeney, reporting from St. Coleman's Cathedral in Cove, County Cork. And the music you heard is a live recording of Adrian's Easter recital. And that's our leap of faith. Our producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. Our broadcast coordinator is Charlotte Holland. From them and me, Michael Cummins, good night. <laughs>